If you tell enough people about something you're going to do, you, you've got to do it. <laughs> I mean, you just got to be relentless. You've got to be fucking hungry. You've got to think about it all the time. You, if it doesn't work, you, it's almost like the Rubik's Cube. You've just got to keep tinkering with it and playing with it and, you know, just working out how you can do it. And, and sometimes then you can park a project, let it breathe, look at it from a different perspective and then come back to it. You know, you can't just fully immerse yourself in one project. And that's the beauty of having multiple projects around you and spinning 17 plates, as you say. That you can park a project and put it on the side and let it idle there and give it some space to breathe. And then, then pick it up again and run with it again with a different take on it. Hey, this is Dan Brophy, and this is Quit Your Day Job, a podcast where I discuss and dissect the passion process tools and tips of some of my favorite creatives. Nick Fordham is a name that is mostly known inside the Australian media industry. He is a talent manager for a number of Australia's best known media and sporting personalities. Possibly his most celebrated client in recent months has been Lisa Wilkinson, whom Nick has worked with for over a decade. Nick Fordham is an ideas man. He belongs to a category of creative thinker that I like to call the strategist. His superpower seems to be in zooming out to see the bigger picture, observing how systems work, and finding a way to connect disparate elements usually for the purpose of satisfying a gap in the market. 2017 has seen many of Nick's other projects blossom to fruition. Outback Wrangler, which is a Steve Irwin meets Bear Grylls show for Nat Geo, is in its third season and is now screened in over 130 countries. Nick's reinvigoration of club rugby has taken it from a forgotten subsidiary of Union to quite literally putting it into a league of its own. He's the co-owner of health food brand, The Manshake, which is one of the biggest in its category. And he's co-created a series called The Mentor, in which Mark Burris of The Apprentice acts as a coach to small business owners. And to top it off, he has just landed The Ellen Show as a client. All of these ideas originating from his observations of opportunities within the market and doing the creative problem solving to fill in the gaps usually with a solution that is innovative and enticing to the consumer. This episode is especially inspirational for those who would like to be more innovative in business, and in particular, the business of being a creative. As Talking With Nick will show, the two are not mutually exclusive. Rather, they are a necessary part of each other, the yin to each other's yang. Please enjoy my chat with talent manager, entrepreneur, and creative businessman, Nick Fordham. Nick Fordham. Dan Brophy. Thank you very much for coming to the round table. Mate, I thought you'd never ask. No, look, I've been sitting on it for a while because I didn't want to, there were so many, so many things that you were working on this year that I thought, I really want to wait to talk to you about that. Which brings me to the question I love to ask most people at the beginning of the conversation, which is, hey, when someone says, what do you do, what do you tell them? Um, that's a good question because uh, early on in my career, it was um, that I'm an agent. 
um, that I act for people. Um, so that was my answer back then. Um, as I've gotten older and wiser and my business has diversified, I do a lot more than that these days. Um, so as I begin to tell people the long list of things I actually do, I actually feel like a bit of a wanker because I, you know, you don't want to sort of list things off because it's, you know, that I do do quite a few different things. So I actually sort of try to um, define it these days as saying I'm an agent, I act for people, um, but I, I'm, you know, I think the word entrepreneur is loosely, too loosely used these days, but that's what I am, you know, I, 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 uh, that's the way I approach my business, whether it's production or health food or brands or anything else, that I try to approach everything entrepreneurially. So, so well, at the risk without of, wanting to, at, without the risk of wanting to sound like a wanker, at the risk of I'm sounding an like a wanker. <laughs> so, well, I mean, that, which is great because it's a it's a it's a hard to pin down term because it could mean it's any broad. number of things. Yeah. What are some of the things that have that have cropped up in 2017 for the Fordham Company? Um, I would probably say. Again, to sort of list them off, um, I suppose first and foremost, the core of our business, the, the management part of our business, which is always, um, as I said, it's the core, it's the bread and butter of what we do. Um, I think it's never been in better shape in terms of who we represent. And we look after a broad range of people from Sylvia Jeffries, uh, Lisa Wilkinson, um, Mark Boris, Paul Ruse, Ange Postacoglu, um, you know, some really amazing uh, people. So the Fordham Company side of things is, is great. Um, I have a health food business with Adam McDougall with our flagship product, The Man Shake. Um, we're winning a lot of awards of fast business growth and everything else. And we're further diversifying with the launch of the Lady Shake and the Kids Shake later this year. Um, so that side of stuff, my television, sports television rights with the Shoot Shield, um, which we took over in 2015. Um, you know, broken product, no one really wanted a piece of it. 22,000 people at our grand final, seven main channel, high ratings. Now, the shoot shield, for those who don't know, like I didn't once upon yeah. a time, is local club rugby. It's the VFL of, of rugby. Um, so, and the VFL's on 7-2, like we're on 7-2 up here. So, so what, what had happened was you observed that club rugby was happening, but no one was televising it? It had been televised for the past 57 years on ABC. And obviously, being a public broadcaster, you can't commercialise it. You can't talk about sponsors. Um, you can't have anyone around naming rights. And I figured in a sport that has a incredibly um, rich demographic um, and thinking of sectors like insurance and banking and automotive and in, um, credit cards and everything else, there was a great opportunity to have a crack at owning sports television rights. And it was just the the about timing really that no one really wanted it because it, it had been um, um, it had lacked love from governing bodies and everyone else and it just needed someone with a bit of vision and a bit of hard work to turn this thing around it's now one of the most successful sporting products in this country there was a, a final match that took place in North Sydney a few months ago that had how many people turn up 22,000 and what had previous years the equivalent event had taken? Well, when we took over in 2015, um, we did a really good job in reinvigorating the game um, with the help of Seven Network and our sponsors. And we had 5,500 people to the grand final. And the, the game itself, the governing body, uh, Sydney Rugby Union, New South Wales Rugby Union, were absolutely stoked. 
um, with the five and a half thousand, five and a half thousand mm. at the grand final. So we, um, you know, we quadrupled that um, within th two years from that. And what was the secret? How did you get? What What did you done that previous people Just in your position didn't do? Gave it the love it deserved, and that's why I think, like the VFL and people, life is complicated. The world is complicated. And I figure that, and people are time poor, and I figure something like a high quality sport like the Shoot Shield, and these guys are, you know, this competition's full of wallabies, they're full of contracted players and some of the best players in the world, and just the next step below that. So the product's right. Um, but it's played at beautiful, historic local grounds, three o'clock in the afternoon in winter. So the idea of my cell is Sausage sandwich in one hand, beer in the other. If you've got kids, bring them down. Ten bucks to get in. It's all, um, it's low risk, you know. And if you give an afternoon to someone of watching a great product that doesn't cost a lot of money to get in, um, sun on their face in winter in the afternoon, a few drinks, and then you're home that evening, I mean, it's a really easy sell. So, and plus as well, it's, it's I mean, you put on free-to-wear TV then and, you're talking to a um, to an audience that are buyers. You know the the rugby audience is an affluent audience. They all have superannuation. They have multiple credit cards. They travel business class. They have investment properties. So it's a really good product to then go out and talk to sponsors, of which we then got anyone from Bang and Olsen to Charter Hall to Fujitsu, Canon. We the the, the um, you know real blue chip brands to support it. Another one of your endeavours for the year was Outback Wrangler. Yeah. And this was, can you tell me the story about how you met Matt in the first place and how this show, so for those that don't know, what is Outback Wrangler? Outback Wrangler is a documentary series on National Geographic. Uh, we're about to launch season three. Uh, we're in 130 countries around the world uh, on Nat Geo and then other secondary sales or free-to-air TV in quite a few significant markets. Uh, Outback Wrangler is following the life of Matt Wright. Matt Wright is, a, is an animal expert and he relocates big problem crocodiles off cattle stations. So Matt, as you know Matt, Matt's a good looking guy. He's, um, as I say, he's you know, the cross between the Marlboro Man and Indiana Jones. He flies helicopters um, and he wrestles um, dinosaurs for a living. But he's, he's not there to, he's there, I mean, in the Northern Territory, they used to have permits for problem crocodiles and cattle stations. For the cattle station over to go down and put a bullet in the crocodile's head if, you know, if it was causing a problem on the, on the station and taking their cattle. Um, Matt has, they call now Matt um, from a conservation point of view to just relocate that crocodile. So, um, yeah, set in the Northern Territory, crocodiles, helicopters, danger, adrenaline, taking that to an international market. How did you see this guy and go, I can see a series in this? Because you met him in, in passing, didn't you? I had never met him. I had seen some video footage of him. Um, so the story is that um, Jonathan Ward, who was head designer for RM Williams, um, was doing photo shoots in the Northern Territory and he took up his beautiful models from Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but trying to capture that essence of, of, um, of RM Williams in the Northern Territory Matt was flying choppers for them, flying them around. So Jonathan Ward called the CEO at that time of um, RM Williams and said, mate, who's the chopper pilot? And he said, oh, it's Matt Wright. He's just the chopper pilot. And he said, no, no, he's going to become the, the central point of our next campaign. 
So he has, you know, he's got star qualities. He's got movie star looks. He, um, so got from that, he then started filming some stuff. I got my hands on that and we'll pl probably played at a Christmas reel at some stage because it's really, really bad. But it showed Matt wanting to do more and get into that world of, you know, content and television and everything else. So I got my hands on that and he was in Canada at the time uh, flying um, and doing relocation and, and tracking of caribou and polar bears and grizzlies and everything else, as you do. And got him back and he said, well, if, you, if you're going to have a crack at this, you might as well fly to the Northern Territory um, and um, come and see what I do firsthand. So borrowed a camera from Channel 9 where my brother was working at the, the time um, and went up there just to capture what I could capture. Amazing. Um, and then realised that this, this guy could have a show. The, re, definitely, I realised that before I even got up there that this guy could have a show, but then seeing firsthand... Um, what the show would yeah. be. So then at that point, you're like anything, you're faced with a, with a challenge of how do I do this, you know? And I was still in my 20s at that stage, so, you know, I didn't have 100 grand to throw at you know, developing a, a pilot. Oh, so this was a little while back. You, you met Matt... Ten years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this is so the fact. I mean, I suppose it's, it's taken that long. It's season three now, and you've been. This is season two I, happened two years ago. Mm. So season one happened eight years ago, and it was four by one hours. But we had to get a, a external production company to help us because we hadn't made. The questions always asked: Have you made television before? And I said no, but it doesn't look that difficult. Um, and yes, yeah, so I had to do that season one, and we let some time um, lapse between doing season one and season two. So we could take back all rights, own it ourselves, produce it ourselves, and um, at that point, though, the you know this part of my methodology with most things is work, is you know how you think laterally to to launch something. So I remember um, a friend of mine, Mark Llewellyn, um, um, who formerly Channel Nine, and he had just moved to Channel Seven to set up a show called Sunday Night. So I called Mark Llewellyn and sent, sent him this video of Matt. And Matt ended up being in their debut series, their, their first episode of Sunday Night on Channel 7. So some, Channel 7 went up there with Cineflex and, you know, two helicopters and the best crew. And that became my reel to sell internationally. Right. See, I, I think that that's... I imagine that even in hearing about all the different things you've, you have been working on, there'll be a couple of patterns that repeat themselves, like the slow burn, the thinking laterally across the potential to mar cross-pollinate marketing between different areas yep. and uh, just to touch on a few more things before we go back to how you even got to this place that yep. you've been able to work in this way 2017 is also involved some a deal with Ellen as well is that right yeah so we announced um, uh, last week last week I think it was um, we about six months ago we were approached by um, Ellen DeGeneres' team um, that were flying to Australia and they were interviewing um, people like myself. So there was, you know, IMG and Mediacom and all these big agencies and um, from media buyers through to agents uh, because they recognise Australia as a significant market for them. It's the second biggest um, uh, audience outside of the US and Canada uh, behind Britain. Um, and they see to uh, wanting to commercialise it. So I... Um, went through a process here and present, uh, presenting to her team. Um, you know, fast forward six months and last man standing and flew my team over to LA a couple of weeks ago and 
had a full immersion with her and her team and everything else. And, and, and that's so that you guys can be what the, the liaisons to media opportunities for Ellen here in Australia? No, it's around commercial relationships. So um, it's commercialising their brand in other markets. So um, it's, um, I see, I mean, Australia punches so far high above its weight in terms of um, How globally. few people we are and then what our impact Yeah, I'm, I'm, I remember when I first started working in the US and doing stuff in the US, and this is actually, um, I was involved with the Wolf of Wall Street project. Um, that's probably another whole podcast in itself. <laughs> um, but I had I opened a satellite office in Los Angeles just to um, prove to people that I, you know, I was a force to be reckoned with, and I was had global reach and everything else. Now I'm satisfied enough of just being based in Darlinghurst, um, and people we're right on the map. I mean, it used to be when people rattle off the the major cities around in the world, it used to be. New York, London, Tokyo, Zurich, but now it's, you know, Sydney's right up there. Um, so And also because people can do work from many more places of the world, you may as well do it from a world-class beach that has an international business city attached to it. 100%. And we're, we're, we're creative people down here, you know, and we think in ways that, you know, traditional media organisations don't think. And just look around at some of our creatives and agencies and ad campaigns and you know, incredible um, TV producers and film directors and just look at how our, our, you know, our actors are doing in Hollywood at the moment. Is it because people have to be so much more resourceful to even get it done in the first place that by the time you come up through the ranks trying to get things made by hook or by crook, then you look at what opportunities are available internationally. Like a friend of mine was saying he went to shoot three, like, Tesco's promos for the UK for Christmas, and the budget was two point one million pounds. Yeah. Now, could you imagine having two million Australian dollars to make free? <laughs> you make a feature ads? film. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you wouldn't even make it. You make a feature film instead. So, well, another thing I wanted to ask you because before we go back to the origins story of what got you to this place to yeah. have seventeen plates spinning quite nicely in tandem, you work with Lisa Wilkinson. It's been a ten-year uh, working relationship so far, and yeah. I think even though everyone, she's a, a nationally known name it seems like people are much more aware of her now than they have been previously just because of you know, the interest in her transitioning from one network to another. Were you surprised at people's response to that movement? Yeah, I really was because at the end of the day it was just about someone changing jobs. Um, and um, I suppose it was the way that it was done um, that Lisa really took control of the situation. Um, and she had options. Um, and it was probably around that, you know, she announced her exit from nine on Twitter and 45 minutes announced her new role at 10 on Twitter. So, um, so it was, that's why I suppose sparked so much interest in theatre around it. But at the end of the day, um, she had an incredible run at the Nine Network, uh, the Today Show's flagship top-end breakfast show, um, and she wouldn't be where she was, where she is today without the Today Show and Nine. So, but it, it, I mean, the theatre around it and the interest around it propelled her into a whole new stratosphere in terms of where she's at and her brand. So, my, my, I went down to Melbourne to visit my dad and he brought it up in conversation naturally because he was so interested in it. And I said, oh, you know that my good friend <laughs> has been working with Lisa in this. And, you know, the fact that it becomes 
a dinner table conversation, something that is as simple as a job transition seems to, because of the zeitgeist, mean more than just what it is yeah. to people. That to me is interesting and I think probably was a good time for her to make that choice. Yeah, and I think it's a, um, um, it was a, it was a, as some people said it was a ballsy move by myself and her in that situation, but um, sometimes a change is good as a holiday, you know, and that's why she had a great run at the Today Show and Nine, and now she has a whole new set of challenges ahead of her at, uh, at Channel 10 and the project. So what, you've got a lot on the go, and many things seem to have been things you've saw potential in and decided to invest creative energy in developing, but I was surprised to hear even Outback Wrangler to become, you know, in 130 countries in a successful, beautifully shot <laughs> Nat Geo series takes 10 years to sl to, of slow burn to oh, get yeah. it to that stage. And a lot of rejection. <laughs> well, that, that's a, I, I'm interested in that because I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this will be in situations where they are somewhere, they have an idea of where they'd like to be, and the point between A and B is really uncertain. So yeah. the, 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 the likeliness that they'll remain in A longer than they should yeah. is, is there because of the amount of uncertainty to get to B. So what, it, what, it, what was your you know, uni, post-uni story in a top-line way to get you to a stage where you can, you know, you, you've only ever really worked for yourself, you've only ever invested your energy in things that you are yeah. passionate about and interested in, but what equipped you for this stage in your career? Well, I never went to uni. Right. Um, I, um, I, 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 I think the reason, yeah, <laughs> I think the reason that I've, um, I've had to challenge myself and be good at what I do post-school is I really didn't do much at school. Um, I, I'm still wondering whether I, I had learning difficulties at school or just whether I really didn't give a fuck about school. Because um, I've always been a big thinker and a dreamer and I'd probably be sitting in the classroom and thinking about something else or wondering about if I could do X or Y or... So I don't know whether that's learning ideas or being a dreamer. Um, so I, when I got out of school and I finished my HSC around this time, 20 years ago, so I've actually been in the family business for 20 years as of sort of this week or next week or something like that. I, yeah, so I left school um, the, afternoon of my, uh, the afternoon of my last HSC exam and I caught a taxi to my family office in York Street and um, went around, this is 1997, so pre-internet. Um, so I had an office with a PC and a printer and a phone and a... Fax machine. And a Teledex, yeah, fax machine, right? And the mailman. And went around to Ruben F. Scarf and got suited up in a couple of suits and um, got a, you know, Nokia slide mobile phone. You know, I was... I was, made it. I, was, I had made it. <laughs> um, but then I, I'm very fortunate enough to have incredible um, influences in my life and as I said it's a family business my mum Veronica and my dad John ran the business and it was pr prim primarily PR at that point but um, PR and a little bit of management but I said to my dad I said so what do I do and he said just follow me just listen learn take notes um, and that's what I really it's how I really learned to do what I do that um, if just following him and and seeing the way he would construct a deal or start off initial discussions around a negotiation and then sort of craft things from there. Um, 
So that was a, um, so, and the other thing as well, I, I, I needed to, not that I started working hard straight away because I was in my 20s and having a good time, but or in my late teens, early 20s, but I realised I fucked around so much at school that I needed to actually make a mark now. And that's sort of been a thing that's, um, whether it's sort of wanting to be accepted or wanting to achieve, um, just because I, um, yeah, I, I didn't achieve too much at school. I did from a sporting point of view, but academically, was I wasn't there, too too good. Was there a raising of the stakes because you being in this new environment that made you want to click into gear? Because I know a lot of people who who probably had the same schooling experience as you, and then went into their post school life with the exact same patterns repeating themselves, but just in a new environment. So what was it about the new environment that made you shift your mindset? I could flourish finally. My the creative bug in me, or the um, um, being a bit of a visionary in terms of looking at a project in its embryonic stages or an idea and actually having the time, the resources, the energy to grow it and spend time on it like Outback Wrangler or Manshake or Shoot Shield or any of these long-term projects I've been working on that finally gave me an opportunity or platform to, to mm. spend a lot of time and energy crafting these things that I backed. So Manshake's an interesting one because I uh, have... Also, this is something that I would have been exposed to through a number of channels besides from talking to you about it. Mm. Manjake was basically realizing that there was a potential to market a protein supplement to a certain type of guy that wasn't currently buying a protein supplement. Is that the essence of... Well, Adam McDougall, who's my business partner, um, who... He's a rugby, he's an ex... So Adam, is, Adam is won two premierships playing for Newcastle. Um, he played for Australia, he played Origin, he's a rugby league legend. Um, he is incredibly intelligent and gifted human being. He studied economics and law when he was playing, he did his MBA first couple of years out. And he became an investment banker, um, soon realised right, why deal with other people's money when you can sort of make your own. Um, but saw this need because a lot of his former teammates were starting to get a bit of a bigger not getting over like extremely overweight, but just thinking and knowing that the protein boom was about to be here uh, and the the liquid breakfast revolution, as we call it, um, creating a product that can um, be a replacement for breakfast in the morning that's high in protein, low in sugar, and is a meal replacement. So you know it can be used as purely as a protein health breakfast shake, or it can be used to lose weight as well. So you saw a complete hole in the market. And you look at anything that, any successful business these days, whether it's you know Deliveroo, Uber, whatever it is, it is looking for a hole in the market um, of, you know, from the consumer to the actual product and sort of trying to fill that, fill that gap. So it's been wildly successful beyond any of our imagination. Because the, the slogan for Manshake is lose the beer gut without losing the beers. It sounds like a promo, but I, I'm just m mentioning it because I think for the average guy, I'm thinking of my dad in particular, who just dreams of loving his physique and feeling yeah. like he looks great, but doesn't want to change a damn thing about his lifestyle. Well, I, I think, think di diet's always been a thing of um, drastically change your life. Don't drink, don't do this, don't do that. And everyone always lapses. And they always come back. Yeah. They lose weight and then they get back on it, or get it, whether it's back on the booze or whatever, whatever it is. So our whole philosophy of our business is, you know, 
it's 52 weeks a year, you know, and that's why a lot of our customers who come on to buy our product, the Man Shake, and now the Lady Shake, um, it's not just about for six weeks to lose some weight. Yeah. You know, it, yes, it can be for a short-term thing, but we find that once they're on the program, they don't get off the program. Mm. So our retention of customer is incredible, and the way we um, the way we have built the business and you know treat our customers and everything else. Um, and understanding men, men are simple beasts. You know, we don't, I think so when you create a women's product and we're dealing through this at the moment, there's all about taste and ingredients and is that natural and where's that from and all these different things. Blokes are like, if I'm going to drink this and I'm going to lose weight and I can still have a few beers on the weekend, it's simple, you know. So it's yeah. it started as a simple idea, but uh, it's an incredibly robust product and, you know, it's an, we're an online business um, uh, with huge um, huge aspirations of taking it global and diversifying our product range and yeah. Yeah, there's a real Australianness to the notion of manshake. Even the branding looks very Aussie blokey. Yeah. Do you think that that will have appeal in other territories? Yeah, well it's when we first had the name it was, you know, it's like, oh manshake. What's a manshake? You know, some of like but you I don't think, I mean, too often in marketing and, and products and brands that people try to be too tricky um, in terms of their name. And I think because we're a first-to-market product, you know, you just need to be, it Spell is, it it's for men, it's a shake, you know. So it's the man That's shake. all you need to know. Yeah. Well, what is your creative process like around, because, you know, you have a lot of, you are a creative person. It's yeah. just that, that business is your is your uh, canvas in a yeah. sense. and. And I am really intrigued by this idea because my entire teens and late teens and 20s, my dad was always p telling me to go and study business or putting, you know, streamlined business concept books in my hand. And I'm like, no, dad, I'm a creative. You don't know me. I'll not, you know, I'm not interested. But, uh, you know, now I realize yeah. that the idea of being able to use your creative brain in that space is a really intriguing concept. But like most creative processes, it requires you to fill the well with inspiration and to gather ideas. And you always seem to know the wider context of the marketing space that you're working in for the various products mm. that you work with. What does your inspiration gathering look like? Well, the creative side of any of the projects I work on is the most exciting for me because the just the idea of being able to take a, an idea um, or a dream or whatever it is and actually then turn it into something um, that people actually end up buying or people watching or going to multiple seasons or people start sponsoring. So getting to that point, it's just, I suppose it's thinking completely laterally. I think people get bogged down too early on in ideas about things where they, they need to write business plans and mission statements and, you know, um, Excel spreadsheets and all those types of things. All those things are very important. But I think early on, the first lesson or the first rule I have with anything is whether it's a good idea or whether it's a shit idea. I think a lot of people have shit ideas that they invest their money into and they spend a lot of time without actually taking it out and talking about it first and seeding it with people. And a lot of people um, are all so familiar with my things I do because I'm constantly talking about them. Yeah, I feel you like know, you road test the concept verbally. 100%. Uh, so you're a bit of an extrovert in that way. You work out what you think about the thing by talking about it. Well, I've one of my other projects, which I'm fortunate to be involved with. I work with Mark Boris, so I manage Mark Boris, and I'm, I'm partners with Mark, which we started a 
uh, the idea around a podcast uh, because Mark is you know incredibly successful businessman and he started Wizard Home Loans with Kerry Packer, sold it to GE for I think a billion dollars. Um, he's now executive chairman of Yellow Brick Road, so very astute, successful business guy. Um, he was host of The Apprentice uh, and Celebrity Apprentice on Nine. Um, so Mark has a well of knowledge and constantly approached by people. So we, I came up with the idea of starting a podcast. Um, it was more of a social experiment for us because we wanted to, I wanted to see with no money and a, a microphone plugged into the wall and then connected to the internet, if we could build an audience. So, and we did that. Um, we now, the podcast called The Mentor is on podcast one. We've just announced a relationship with the Seven Network um, where the podcast, the, the show now, The Mentor, is going to be a prime-time TV show, and we've got some other business things that we're building off the back of it. But what became really evident to me during this process is a lot of startups that we interviewed. And it was heartbreaking to see so many people with brilliant ideas that A, didn't know how to articulate it, didn't have the contacts, or didn't have um, connection to funding or creatives, um, and most of the time these people sit in their lounge room, you know, tapping away on their computer or they're leaving their jobs or they're working at night because they have a daytime job. But on the flip side of that, there's other people who have drawn down on their home loan or invested their life savings into a shit idea. And it's almost like early on with that shit idea, it would have been great to road test it and get it out there and talk to people because as soon as people start going, why would you do that? Mm. Or isn't that just like X? And I think that's where I've been, that's what I like to do is early on seed my projects with people like yourself and my brother and Kirk and all my mates around me as well that from all different walks of life because feedback's important, you know. I've sometimes fallen into the habit of talking about a project so much and getting a lot of kudos for the idea to the degree that I've been less likely to act on the implementation because I've already had lots of people tell me what a great idea it was. <laughs> is that a danger when you're talking something out that you will talk it out instead of actually doing yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you need to, yeah, um, you need to follow through and, you know, otherwise it's just an idea, you you're know. just one of those yeah. guys who talks about his kill yeah, yeah. ideas all the time. Yeah, and that's, that is dangerous, you know. So find the happy medium between just talking it out so it comes to, you kind of put the ideas together in your mind and you know how it's going to look but then act on it. Yeah, and act on it pretty quickly, you know, and that's why, but make sure you've got a great idea first, you know, and it's got it's a sound sort of business model around it. Um, well, I feel like when, you, when you've spoken about some of the things you're excited about, you don't present a broad, you don't often present the broad context of why it's going to work, but you distill it down into a singular feeling or connection. So, for example, when you were talking to me about the shoot shield as to why people we're going to want to come along to experience it. You, you, you would talk about, you know, how great the catering was going to be at the tents on the sidelines and how good the, you know, what the, the was the, there's going to be beautifully designed. And, you know, you, you were zeroing in on the experience of leaving your house on a weekend afternoon in the middle of winter, you know, getting an Uber down to the track, yeah. uh, to the, the field, you know, having a really nice time. And then you described the feeling of having gotten home at the end of the day having done something Selling the dream, man. Yeah, yeah. But, but interestingly, like, the rugby component of it almost didn't bear describing because everyone knows what that is. You sort of described the lifestyle. It's the whole product, yeah. And the other thing as well, I'm used to, I've been used to going to stadium sports where you 
they're on at night, you can't take your kids, it's expensive, you gotta line up for beer, it's served in and a plastic cup, it's, um, you're there lining up, there's, so I thought, well, how do I have the same product, the same great rugby, it's on television, but um, we partner with, so our VIPs that came down to our tent, that's right on the sidelines, so you hear all the, all the tackles and crashes and, and, and noises and players screaming at each other, so you get all that action, but, you're drinking beer out of a you know, Peroni out of a glass bottle or you're drinking a glass of French champagne or you it's great catering. So all those things, um, some uh, 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 contacts of ours, a, a, a business and friend of ours, um, a business contact and a friend of ours, uh, Dennis Hanlon, who's chairman and CEO of Sony Music, he's, uh, he used to have these number plates, um, uh, ATD, uh, Attention to Detail. And that's one thing that I have, um, I've sort of picked up over the years, like that attention to detail. What and and another thing that my dad always used to say to me is like, uh, mate, put yourself in the other person's shoes. So if I'm a client of mine and I'm going to do an event or I'm about to go shoot an ad campaign or and I my company is responsible for briefing them, to put myself in their situation, how do I? How do I act as, you know, do I want to make sure that my drivers turn up on time and hair and makeup and I'm briefing and I've read the scripts and there's no issue with the script. So that attention to detail right across every facet, whether it's a client of ours going to doing something or it's a potential sponsor turning up to my rugby event or it's just one of the punters on the hill or it's someone at home watching TV, watching the product. So I'm a bit pedantic when it comes to that and that's things that keep me up at 2 o'clock in the morning of constantly thinking how can I make this better how can I make this better and that's where I'm never satisfied with anything I do um, that's a bit of a problem <laughs> because I always want to make them better you know always tinkering in them um, always tweaking them um, and I suppose it's that can be a a bad thing to be to have but I look at it as a positive because um, you know you've always got to continue raising the bar when you are in that process of you know, working late at night, you know, when you, the times in your work day that you are just you at a computer, are you checking out blogs, reading forums, doing market research? Like, how do you know what's going to float besides from the verbal conversations you have with people who you love to talk about ideas with? Um, no, I don't read blogs. I Because you seem to be in it, like, maybe you're just subconsciously absorbing things, but you seem to be sort of tapped into the zeitgeist where you know why something's going to work from a few different touch points before you put it out there. Yeah, I, and it's not and it's through. Not, it's not through. It's not through research. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's just a, a sense just you get for what being, people are wanting. I suppose it's just being having awareness around you and and being in a job where I I can deal on so many exciting different projects. Whether I'm dealing with Matt Wright on a sixty minute story of catching an eighteen foot crocodile, and there's there's an issue with the indigenous land that he's catching on and film crews in, the next minute I could be dealing with one of my clients on a high-end shoot for Vogue magazine and the next minute we're organising short-form content for Shoot Shield. So my, my, my creativity in my mind is across so many different fields. So I'm constantly absorbing everything from all these different things. Plus as well, I mean, I read newspapers every day so I'm aware of what's going on, who's spending money, who's changing agencies, all those types of things. So I feel I've got a, I've got a handle on most things, but I don't dig too deep down 
too deep down into into projects. You know, I'm not a. Uh, I'd love to say I read a lot of books, so, and I I don't. I um I don't just don't get time, and I I'm I'm more into short form con, con, um, consumption these days. Um, You're not even someone who I who I never hear you refer to any shows you watch or you know you you don't really. I make love YouTube. Yeah, right. Give me a three-minute video any day. Oh, but uh, I, I mind you, there's things that I then completely get into. I mean, you know, series on on Netflix. I, I, I'm loving the way the world's changed in terms of the way we consume media. And I mean, it used to be a thing that was someone was saying to me the other day that you know a good series, a really good series these days, needs to launch on SVOD mm. um, because you need to um, consume a whole series on a rainy weekend or you're sick, or you watch five episodes back to back, and that's what Narcos and Stranger Things and all these great series now coming on Netflix. The days are gone where you watch this episode on a Wednesday night at 8.30 and think, shit, I can't wait for Next another week. whole week for part two. to watch part two. Mm. I want it now. Um, so, but a lot of my world um, is... For papers, would you read... Do you read Daily Telly... I read the Telegraph. I read the AFR. I love the Oz. Um, yeah, with something like Instagram of just being across anything from what the Huffington Post is doing, or the New Yorker, or um, um, CNN, or or Nat Geo, or MTV, or individuals, or creatives, or Anthony Listers, or just absorbing where people are at, what they're doing, what what's their medium at that time. What's their projects? You know, so it's all that bite-sized stuff that sort of feeds everything that I get inspiration from. Do you get a sense for trends or things that become popular, and you see it coming around the corner, and it lands? You're like, oh, I that, that makes sense to me. I saw that coming. Yeah, well, you've got to. Um, uh, I suppose that yeah, that's anything that's successful. You need to be you know first to market, and and I've got a couple other things that I'm that I'll probably hope to discuss on a future podcast with you that. Um, that I'm working on at the moment that I can't talk about, but they're really big projects and they're hopefully first to markets and um, yeah. So it's you just got to be just got to be aware. You got to be aware of what's going on. And the other thing as well, I've got I'm married and I've got two little kids, so I'm you know I'm engrossed a lot of the time in reading children's books and and what's Peppa Pig doing and you know all these different cartoons. And I look at my girls now and they don't watch TV. They're on iPads, and when we travel somewhere and there's a Blaze and the Monster Machines cartoon on TV and it finishes, and they want to watch another one, and I have to explain to my girls, my six-year-old and my three-year-old, no, that's finished now. Now you've got to watch the next thing that's on, and they look at me like I'm stupid or something, and thinking like, what is this hotel and saying? It's like, oh, this is a five-star hotel, and that's a great TV, and it's connected to amazing technology owned by 21st Century Fox. But they look at me thinking, no, no, I want it now. And that's when I pull out my phone and type in Blaze and the Monster Machines and they can watch it on YouTube. So that's my six-year-old and three-year-old. So I could see the world changing so much and we're gonna have to adapt really, really quickly. And that's why things like Amazon Prime and Netflix and all these amazing, and seeing how like Disney's now gonna have its own SVOD and 21st Century Fox is gonna Low entry point of customers, you know, 14 bucks a month or whatever it is. You don't even flinch on your credit card statement. 
cut, times cut it by tens of straight, millions of people, that's the future, you know? Um, was there a point when you were working with your dad that your interest in the new way of working eclipsed what the way that the Fordham company had been working previously? Uh, not really, because I, my dad's always, I think the other way around, I think I've kept my dad young. Right. Um, by, he's an incredibly talented businessman and a, you know, incredibly um, powerful guy in the way he's thinking and hard to change his mind on stuff and quite stubborn at times, but we won't get into that. Um, but he, um, no, I've brought a whole new uh, way of thinking and entre entrepreneurial approach to our business of, and sometimes as well, like even Outback Wrangler, my dad early on is like, mate, do you, you know, it's expensive to make television. Are you sure you want to get into this? And it's like, no, well, I'm, I'm committed to it. I, I've, I've told a lot of my friends about it. <laughs> so I need to do it now. I need to deliver. And that's the other thing as well. You've got to put things out there. Unless you, if you keep it to yourself, you can file it away forever. But if you start talking about it, and I spoke to you recently about a project of put a date on it. Put a date on it. You know, saying I'm going to launch at this point, because then there's no hiding. You know, so um, no, I wouldn't be anywhere where I am without clearly without my parents for from a, a scientific point of view. But where my dad has just let me free and run wild in the business world, he's never um, early on never put any restrictions on me. Always just said, you know, he gave me this great line one time. He said. Um, I never want you to make money, I want you to create money. And that's what I've been my philosophy in most things of creating these businesses and always thinking how can I do things better and um, you know, it even comes down to my clients and the, the partnerships that they're with. You know, I don't want to create a partnership with a client of mine and a product or a business that has this short term view because in a year's time or two years time, I'm gonna probably have to replace that deal with something else. I'd rather focus on what's the perfect brand fit here and you look at one of our clients, long-term long, long -term clients, Mark Taylor, former Australian Test cricket captain, and Fujitsu, Australia's favourite heir. He's been with him for 20-plus years. You know, early on in our business, John Laws, Toyota, Valvoline, Qantas. I mean, you're talking deals over 20-something years. I mean, that's the sweet spot in what I do is finding the right mix or finding the right fit and the right deal and then having longevity around it. Were there any key tipping points in your career where you can say that, wow, uh, you know, 18 sounds like that was an interesting tipping point from the, an outdated thought of who you were and what you had to offer to, into a new space where, which sounds like actually just being out of the, the, the school model and giving you, that suited your way of thinking and working, but were there any other major points? Yeah, I, do you know what, I, um, um, and you've had some influence in my, my life as well, Dan Brophy, because I... We came from the old school mentality and my dad's nickname was Salunch a lot. You know, we used to go to lunch all the time and expensive restaurants and eat rich food and drink lots of booze and, because that's what, the, in my dad's era, that's the way deals were done, you know? Um, good business sense. Good business sense. And you go to any top end restaurant back in the day and it was full of TV network C, uh, execs and CEOs and chairmans and creatives and that's where deals were done. You know, and to fast forward 20 years and the internet and email and WhatsApp and, 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 and social media and, and everyone wanting everything now, it changed my whole philosophy of going, I don't want to be that old dude in a restaurant in a suit. Um, I want to be, you know, I want to be in my office with my team. So getting out of that sort of lunch 
long lunches and oh, that's where deals are done, to saying no, I want to focus on my health and I want to be around my staff and I lead by example. So that's been a huge chain turning point and that's been this year. And I would probably say to date that this year has been my best year to date. So that's been a huge turning point and I'd give anyone advice any day of just um, finding balance because I, I, I certainly haven't had balance in the past. Um, and because I lead a manic life, you know, cr- crazy hours and, and spinning a million plates at the same time. But finding balance for me this year has been a huge turning point. What does that look like for you? Um, well, putting health first, training every day, which I train with you every day. Um, you know, I've, I've got off the booze, which has been a huge thing for me. Um, and, and that looked like um, drinking most days, drinking most drinking weekends. most days, yeah, drink and not being an alcoholic, but it's this binge drinking of you know you go to lunch and you have a few beers before lunch and then you have a couple of bottles of wine over lunch and then you, well, what should I do now? Should I go back to the office and work? Oh no, well I've had a few drinks. We should go to the pub, you know, for another five hours and then you have make fat, bad food choices that night and you're probably not the best father or you're not the best husband and. Then you wake up the next morning and I'd probably send a text message to you by saying I can't train today because I've got a business meeting but I'm probably hungover and this vicious cycle of, you know, one, you know sort of rolls, keeps rolling on and then you wake up the next day and you, then you look at your diary and you think, shit, I've got another lunch today. So getting that out of my life, um, it's not all around about drink, it's just about balance, you know, like had my, one of my PA, Stacey's, but um, well, she her, her work birthday with us, so she'd been with me for four years, uh, just on Friday. So we went to Bondi Fish, quick lunch, bottle of Don Perignon, which to celebrate it, and then we went to the beach. So rather than having this long lunch, we went well late in the afternoon. Just changing the mindset, and I think as a leader, you got to you got to you got to talk the talk and walk the walk. You know, you can't set an example in your office space or people you work with of saying, this is what I want out of you. And then I go and get pissed for the afternoon, you know? So I found that as actions speak louder than words. Have you had to, how do you get uh, gentlemen who are still doing business the old school way who want to engage with you in that way for the purpose of business? How do you change that dynamic? Well, it's easy because you you either go to lunch and drink mineral water and you're out of there by 2.30 or the big one these days, I have breakfast with people. I have breakfast meetings and I have brunch with people. Um, and I think there's a certain level of respect for people as well. It's not like I'm a teetotaler, I'm, I'm boring because I'm not on the booze all the time, but it's like saying I'm busy and I've got things on. You know, let's meet me at seven o'clock in the morning, we'll have breakfast. Mm, some of the most and, successful people in the world don't drink, so therefore it's a good sign. Well, it is, you know, and it's just about time. I need time for my staff. Um, to set a good example, I need, um, uh, I can't believe they're going to be listening to this as well. Um, uh, I need time to, obviously for my clients and my business interests, but I'm, I, you know, most importantly, I need time for my kids, you know. So when I come home from a long day at work, rather than having a long lunch and, you know, probably half inebriated getting home, I get home satisfied because I've done everything I can do in the business day. But then I can spend some quality time with my girls, you know. And for me, having time and awareness and and um, being present and not fudging it, you know, is probably the most important thing which I've got out of this year. So 
Are there any projects that you're working on now that you're able to talk about that are in the early stages of inception that if I was to check in with you in a year's time, you'd say... Oh, pressure. Yeah, or you'd say, <laughs> oh, I've, I've nailed it, I've done this, I've got finally got this thing that I'm really looking forward to. You always do seem to have many things on the yeah, board at the same um, time. I'm just trying to think. I've got so many things on the... Um, well, what's uh, one, what's, yeah, what's I've one? got a... I've, um, oh, I can't talk about that one. <laughs> Is there a type, category of work or a type of yeah, thing you'd so like to I'm, work on? Yeah, so I am, by this time next year, um, I will have uh, at least two other, maybe three, um, television projects, um, which I hope to have greenlit and launched, of which I'll sit in a co-creator, executive producer um, space, and that is something that I'm really wanting to explore and grow. You know, I'm an executive co-creator, executive producer and producer of Outback Wrangler. I'm a um, producer on the Shoot Shield broadcast. I've just sold The Mentor, uh, created that and co-created that with Nick Boris, um, Mark's son, who's a business partner of ours, um, uh, to Seven, and I'll executive produce across that. Um, but I've got about two to three other projects um, in that space, and I'm really enjoying that part of my business makeup at the moment, because I have the talent, not myself, I have connections to talent, an incredible talent who I either manage or I'm connected to. I have the creativity to think what would the wider world want out of someone like that, and how could I steer them in a direction, and then produce that content, own that content, and then broadcast it, you know. Then at that point, bring commercial partners in to support that and wrap around it. So I, I love that whole um, funnel of taking an idea from its embryonic stages. Um, but again, it's all around talent, creativity, and then actually just fucking following through and getting it done, you know. Of, of all the skills that you bring to the table that allow you to work on such a variety of projects, is there one value or strength that you observe yourself possessing that you think facilitates working across such a breadth of projects? Um, what do you have that makes you good at these jobs? I'm relentless when it comes down to, so I said, if you tell enough people about something you're gonna do, you, you gotta do it. <laughs> but you just gotta, but it's, yeah, I mean, you just gotta be relentless. You gotta be fucking hungry. You gotta think about it all the time. You, if it doesn't work, you, it's almost like the Rubik's Cube. You've just got to keep tinkering with it and playing with it and, you know, just working out how you can do it. And, and sometimes then you can park a project, let it breathe, look at it from a different perspective and then come back to it. You know, you can't just fully immerse yourself in one project. And that's the beauty of having multiple projects around you and spinning 17 plates, as you say. You can park a project and put it on the side and let it idle there and give it some space to breathe and then, then pick it up again and run with it again with a different take on it. Um, but I think that's the attitude you need to have. You just gotta be fucking relentless. Nice place to end. Thank you, mate. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Nick identifies that one of the reasons why people don't manage to be more effective with their ideas is due to a lack of workshopping through casual conversation or tabling with peers. And he believes that too many people invest in projects that suffer from not enough or poor concept development. By road testing the idea, you can be more sure of its potential by the time you invest any actual resource in developing it further. I haven't always thought of business as being creative, but in getting to know Nick, I can see how so much of his process is like all the other creative disciplines that I've observed. There are a set of problems that are presented for the purpose of achieving a synergetic resolve, a number of movable parts organized around some fixed parameters, and a set of rules to the game, some of which are observed purely for the purpose of bending them. In the conversation, you also heard a reference to the fact that Nick and I are neighbors and we exercise together three or four mornings a week, which is a simple but effective way to tick a number of boxes simultaneously. I'd be at the gym anyway, but combining it with a chance to spend time with a friend who encourages me to think outside the box and cultivate my awareness beyond my usual way of thinking is the thing that ultimately gets me out of bed at 5.55 in the morning. If you are the sum of the people that you spend time with, I recommend looking for ways to enhance the time that you invest in certain activities by spending it with people who you are excited and intrigued by. This might be in the form of throwing a dinner party for your creative friends, inviting someone that you admire to coffee, or combine the discussions of your creative process with a walk or a run with a like-minded buddy. There's also something to be learned from how Nick thinks laterally about promoting his business projects. Not everyone has mates in TV whom they can call upon, but many of us do get too bogged down in following traditional channels when working out how to promote our projects. In this day and age, a creative person needs to be their own chief of marketing. So it pays to think about who your target audience is and what you can leverage to appeal to that audience what you personally have access to that will give you a competitive advantage. So if you're thinking of promoting a skill via Instagram or Facebook, what value can you bring to your offering that is unique? You may leverage your relationships, your ability to write or take photos, your exposure to places or events that have interest and value to your community. Do a stock take of your resources and brainstorm the ways in which you can utilize and exploit them. This is the difference between being an artist who works alone for their own satisfaction and the growing of a creative career. That's all for this week. I want to end on a shout out once more to anyone who would like some one-on-one -on -one assistance with their creative project or passion process because I'm looking to workshop a workshop for creatives. So it would be as much help to me as I hope it would be to you to get together and discuss whatever it is you're working on, either in person or over the phone. So if this sounds like it would be beneficial to you, hit me up at danbrophy at gmail.com or via Instagram direct message at danbrophy. See you next time. And until then, why don't you try inviting your most creative friend out for a coffee to talk about process?